Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman Esquire, about to depart for Dublin, Ireland. Dublin, Ireland. Uh, mere mere moments away from departure, we're heading over there. I think I mentioned um, shooting an episode of Name That Tune, hosted by Jane Krakowski. Why they're shooting in Dublin, Ireland, I don't know, and I don't care. Uh, because I got a call, said, hey, do you want to go to Dublin for free? And they'll pay you, and they'll donate money to the charity of your choice. And all you have to do is be on Name That Tune. Well... That was an easy yes for me. I mean, what the hell else am I doing? You know? Now, I'll be perfectly frank with you. I'm going to do terribly on this game show. Because while I recognize many tunes, I probably can't name any of them. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm musically illiterate. Like, I'm not as illiterate with music as I am with works of classic literature. But nor can I say that uh, I have a particular strength unless it's from my ute, you know, when people pay careful attention to music. When I was in my ute, I knew all the songs and all the artists and and all the rest of it, but probably for the last 25 years, I have not been aware of really any popular music. So it's going to be a shit show, but I don't care. I'm going to be an enthusiastic contestant. I'm going to smile. I'm going to make jokes and I'm going to lose. And I'm fine with that. 
my charity of choice, of course, the Mark Twain Library in Reading, Connecticut, the only library founded by Mark Twain and the uh, recipient of much of my largesse over the last 15 years or so when I started the Puddinhead Festival there in Redden, Redding, Connecticut, a literary and humor celebration. Every year we do a big gala and we have a children's event and we do a night of stand-up and for a while we were doing selected shorts there. Uh, always a good time. This year's honoree, the gala, Samantha B. We've had other honorees. Uh, I'll just run down the list. This may be the last year I do it because, of course, I no longer live in the wilds of Connecticut. And so, you know, it's, it's you know, I don't live there anymore. But here, here's who we honored in years past. Our first honoree was Roz Chast. Then we did, oh, gee, I, I may not get the order correct, but Ben Stiller, uh, Seth Meyers, uh, Laura Linney, Amy Schumer, who uh, her her ovaries exploded, so she had to leave at the last moment. So then we got Chris Malonian, and then, oh, Jim Gaffigan, Paul Rudd, and now Samantha B. Just an all-star cast of honorees. And it's always a fabulous night there in the wilds of Connecticut. It's in September. You can't come because it's going to get sold out, but it, it is going to be a fun night. Anyway, that's my charity but really, I'm going just, I don't give a shit about charity. I'm really just there to walk around Dublin with my bride. And maybe we'll take some day trips and uh, who knows. And then she's going on to London afterwards. And then I'm coming home because I have some stand-up comedy shows to do. So it's going to be fun. Although, I will say that uh, one annoying thing is when you live in a little town like I do here in Savannah, Georgia, you can't get the direct flights anywhere. So to get to... Dublin, we have to go to Dallas first. So if you go uh, the entirely wrong direction and then fly the correct direction. So it's going to be a long day of flight. I thought before I get on the aeroplane, let me record an episode of Obscure for your listening enjoyment in case maybe you're taking an aeroplane flight somewhere and you need something to plug into your ears. Well, this could be the very thing. This particular episode and we've got where well, I know we're starting with an epistle today you know and how, how many how many days start with an epistle well you might take an epistle in the middle of the night when you wake up and you're like ah, I gotta I gotta go but rarely rarely do podcasts start with them and this one is going to because uh, as you recall last time Isabella Ran off with Heathcliff, got herself hitched. Linton basically disowned her. She's, uh, you know, she's trying to explain herself, and Linton won't return her phone calls. I mean, not that they have phone calls, but you know what I'm saying. And so she writes a letter to Nellie Dean of County Cork. I don't know what county she's in, but she's Irish. And uh, so that's what we're going to pick up here. Chapter 13, Wuthering Heights. Uh, so then this is, uh, this is Mrs. Dean now reading the letter from Isabella. She's reading it to Lockwood. Dear Ellen, it begins, I came last night to Wuthering Heights and heard for the first time, uh, no, no, I, guess I, I guess I should read it in Isabella's voice. I don't even have an Isabella voice because to this point she's been such a minor character, really. But she's a, she's a silly little thing, a flighty little thing. And, you know, let's be honest, she's only 17 years old or whatever it is. How many of us were flighty little things at that age? I know I was. I wasn't really. I was a freshman at New York University. Go Violets, you know, I was, I was doing the work. Dear Alan, 
it begins. I came last night to Wuthering Heights and heard for the first time that Catherine has been and is yet very ill. I must not write to her, I suppose, and my brother is either too angry or too distressed to answer what I send him. Still, I must write to somebody, and the only choice left me is you. Well, that's not very nice. The only choice left me is you. I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel here, Nellie, Mrs. Dean. I got nobody else to talk to, so I'm I'm writing to a lowly servant lass. Inform Edgar that I'd give the world to see his face again, that my heart returned to Thrushcross Grange in 24 hours after I left it, and it is there at this moment, full of warm feelings for him and Catherine. I can't follow it, though. Those words are underlined. They need not expect me, and they may draw what conclusions they please. Taking care, however to lay nothing at the door of my weak will or deficient affection. So she's already regretting the marriage to Heathcliff. Not 24 hours after she hitched her ride to that black heart, she's already regretting it. And who can blame her? He's He's a skunk, that one. The remainder of the letter is for yourself alone. I want to ask you two questions. The first is, how did you contrive to preserve the common sympathies of human nature when you resided here? I cannot recognize any sentiment which those around share with me. So she, I guess she's, she says at the beginning, she's there at Wuthering Heights, right? She's saying, how were you nice when you were here? Because this place sucks. Everybody's mean here. And so who's living there at the moment? It's uh, Hindley and what's his face? Heathcliff and now her and Joseph, who, who's terrible. The second question I have great interest in, it is this. Is Mr. Heathcliff a man? Well, that's an interesting question. If so, is he mad? And if not, is he a devil? I shan't tell my reasons for making this inquiry, but I beseech you to explain, if you can, what I have married. That is, when you call to see me, and you must call, Ellen, very soon, don't write but come. And bring me something from Edgar. Now you shall hear how I have been received in my new home, as I am led to imagine the heights will be. It is to amuse myself that I dwell on such such subjects as the lack of external comforts. They never occupy my thoughts, except at the moment when I miss them. I should laugh and dance for joy if I found their absence was the total of my miseries, and the rest was an unnatural dream. I mean, what the hell? I mean, they've only been married a minute. What is he having her doing? Don't tell me butt stuff, because if it's butt stuff, that's, that's, against, that's against all laws of man. The sun set behind the grange as we turned onto the moors. By that, I judged it to be six o'clock, and my companion halted half an hour to inspect the park and the gardens, and probably the place itself, as well as he could. So it was dark when we dismounted in the paved yard of the farmhouse, and your fellow servant, Joseph, issued out to receive us by the light of a dip candle. He did it with a courtesy that redounded to his credit. Well, you'll get to know him, and you'll find out his credit is low. His first act was to elevate his torch to a level with my face, squint malignantly, project his under lip, and turn away. Well, so there you go. 
Then he took the two horses and led them into the stables, reappearing for the purpose of locking the outer gate as if we lived in an ancient castle. Heathcliff stayed to speak to him, and I entered the kitchen, a dingy, untidy hole. I dare say you would not know it. It is so changed since it was in your charge. By the fire stood a ruffianly child, strong in limb and dirty in garb, with a look of Catherine in his eyes and about his mouth. This is Edgar's legal nephew, I reflected. Mine in a manner. I must shake hands, and yes, I must kiss him. It is right to establish a good understanding at the beginning. I approached and attempted to take his chubby fist, said, How do you do, my dear? He replied in a jargon I did not comprehend. Shall you and I be friends, Hareton? was my next essay at conversation. In oath and a threat to set Throttler on me if I did not frame off, rewarded my perseverance. So, an oath and a threat. Oh, oh, I see. That wasn't the kid speaking. I was doing the kid's voice, but that wasn't him speaking. She was saying, he swore at me and said he was going to sit the dog on my face, on my fucking face, if I did not frame off. And there's a there's a little footnote there. Frame off. Well, that sounds like a, a common modern idiom as well. Frame off, go away. In other words, fuck off. My, my goodness. Hey, throttler lad, whispered the little wretch, rousing a half-bred bulldog from its lair in a corner. Now we're to be ganging, he asked authoritatively. And then uh, there's another footnote. Wilt Tubby Gang, and apparently he's picked up Joseph's accent. No doubt Joseph is raising him. What is that? 33. All right. Now, will you be going, is what he's saying. Will you be going? Love for my life urged a compliance. I stepped over the threshold to wait till the others should enter. Mr. Heathcliff was nowhere visible, and Joseph, whom I followed to the stables, and requested to accompany me in after staring and muttering to himself, screwed up his nose and replied, Mim, 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 did ever Christian body hear out like it? Minchin and munchin, I can all tell you what you say. All right, so we're going to need a little translation there. Did every Christian body, did, did another Christian ever hear anything like it? Minchin and munchin. How I can how can I tell what you say? What the hell? Okay, uh, here's the translation. Did ever a Christian person hear anything like this? Mincing and munching her words. How can I tell what you're saying? So Joseph can't understand her. So she's mincing and munching her words. My goodness, my God, my gosh! It's just it just it does not sound good. She shows up at her new house and. Everybody, the the dog's being threatened on her, and Joseph is chastising her, and Heathcliff's nowhere to be found. The kitchen is a hole. What is this poor lass to do? Tisk tisk tisk. Oh, why doesn't she leave? I would. Uh, I say, I wish you to come with me into the house. I cried, thinking him deaf, yet highly disgusted at his rudeness. Nor knew me. I got something else to do. Uh, so we can understand what that is, he answered, and continued his work, 
moving his lantern jaws, meanwhile, and surveying my dress and countenance. The former a great deal too fine, but the latter, I'm sure, as sad as he could desire, with sovereign contempt. I walked round the yard and through a wicket to another door, at which I took the liberty of knocking, in hopes some more civil servant might shoe himself. After a short suspense, it was opened by a tall, gaunt man, without nickerchief, well, I'm already affronted, no neckerchief, and otherwise extremely slovenly. His features were lost in masses of shaggy hair that hung on his shoulders, and his eyes, too, were like a ghostly Catherine's, with all their beauty annihilated. What's your business here? He demanded grimly. Who are you? My name was Isabella Linton, I replied. You've seen me before, sir. I'm lately married to Mr. Heathcliff, and he has brought me here, I suppose, by your permission. Is he come back, then? asked the hermit, glaring like a hungry wolf. Yes, we came just now, I said, but he left me by the kitchen door, and when I would have gone in, your little boy played sentinel over the place and frightened me off by the help of a bulldog. That's well the hellish villain has kept his word, growled my future host, searching the darkness beyond me in expectation of discovering Heathcliff. And then he indulged in a soliloquy of execrations and threats of what he would have done had the fiend deceived him. So, you know, everything is just come unglued for Isabella. And I can't say I mind very much. We never knew her. We never really cared for her. You know, she just, she's been, uh, you know, just like a butterfly flitting at the ages, uh, the edges of the story to this point. But now she has, sir, she is serving as a spy, is she not, as to the condition and uh, squalor of Wuthering Heights, which Lockwood will stumble into some years hence. And, uh, yeah, that's where it is. Let's take a little break because I'm yawning and stretching, trying to come alive. As I prepare, mentally, physically, etc., for my flight to Dublin. All right, back in a second, here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back now on Obscure. Uh, the letter continues. Uh, I don't know who long, who knows how long it's going to continue. Probably for chapters and chapters and chapters. Uh, yeah, I just skipped ahead. I mean, pages of this letter. So we have to get through it, you know. I mean, we understand the condition of Wuthering Heights already. There's probably nothing else she's going to tell us that is going to surprise us in any way, shape, or form. But, you know, 
Do we want to hear about her degradation and misery? Sure, I suppose we do. That's why we're here. Uh, so what's his face? Hinley is all, uh, you know, uh, he's slovenly. He's not wearing a neckerchief. He's probably drunk. Heathcliff has ruined him. And uh, everything's, everything's terrible. I repented having tried this second entrance and was almost inclined to slip away before he finished cursing. But ere I could execute that intention, he ordered me in and shut and refastened the door. Well, you know, Isabella, I mean, just a word of friendly advice. Don't go in that room. The dude's drunk. He's slovenly. He's, 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 he's crazy as a, well, I don't know, bat, what's the, what's the expression? Shithouse rat, whatever it is. And, uh, and then he locked the door behind him. Don't do that. Don't go in there. That's not good. There was a great fire, and that was all the light in the huge apartment, whose floor had grown a uniform gray. And the once brilliant pewter dishes, which used to attract my gaze when I was a girl, partook of a similar obscurity created by tarnish and dust. I inquired whether I might call the maid and be conducted to a bedroom. Mr. Earnshaw vouchsafed no answer. He walked up and down with his hands in his pockets, apparently quite forgetting my presence, and his abstraction was evidently so deep and his whole aspect so misanthropical that I shrank from disturbing him again. You'll not be surprised, Ellen, at my feeling particularly cheerless, seated in worse than solitude on that inhospitable hearth, and remembering that four miles distant lay my delightful home, containing the only people I loved on earth, and there might as well be the Atlantic to part us instead of those four miles. I could not overpass them. I questioned with myself, where must I turn for comfort? And, mind you, don't tell Edgar or Catherine. Above every sorrow beside, this rose preeminent, despair at finding nobody who could or would be my ally against Heathcliff. I had sought shelter at Wuthering Heights, almost gladly, because I was secured by that arrangement from living alone with him. But he knew the people we were coming amongst, and he did not fear their intermeddling. I sat and thought a doleful time. The clock struck eight and nine, and still my companion paced to and fro, his head bent on his breast and perfectly silent, unless a groan or a bitter ejaculation forced itself out at intervals. I listened to detect a woman's voice in the house and filled the interim with wild regrets and dismal anticipations, which, at last, spoke audibly in irrepressible sighing and weeping. That's what happens. That is exactly what happens. When you show up at a new place, you know, and you don't like it, and you're thinking, well, my God, what, what woeful tidings brought me here that, that I mean that was me when we showed up in at our haunted mansion here in Savannah you know and it was hot and there were cockroaches and the place was a mess and dirty and dusty and uh, the work hadn't been done and oh, I'm just sitting there sighing and lamenting and weeping and gnashing my teeth and now look at me you know southern gentleman ESQ contented to 
survey all of my lands, which amount to about a, I don't know, 16th of an acre or something like that. Tiny little, tiny little plot of land. Oh, it's city living, you know, you're not going to, not going to have any land, but. And it's nice. What I'm saying is it's nice. But I don't think Wuthering Heights is going to get nice for Isabella. Let's be honest. We, You know, it, it starts bad, and it's probably going to get worse. I was not aware how openly I grieved till Earnshaw halted opposite in his measured walk and gave me a stare of newly awakened surprise. Taking advantage of his recovered attention, I exclaimed, I'm tired with my journey and I want to go to bed. Where is the maidservant? Direct me to her, as she won't come to me. We have none, he answered. You must wait on yourself. Where must I sleep then? I sobbed. I was beyond regarding self-respect, weighed down by fatigue and wretchedness. Joseph will show you Heathcliff's chamber, said he. Open that door, he's in there. I was going to obey, but he suddenly arrested me and added in the strangest tone, be so good as to turn your lock and draw your bolt. Don't omit it. Well, I said, but why, Mr. Earnshaw? I did not relish the notion of deliberately fastening myself in with Heathcliff. Look here, he replied, pulling from his waistcoat a curiously constructed pistol, having a double-edged spring knife attached to the barrel. That's a great tempter to a desperate man, is it not? I cannot resist going up with this every night and trying his door. If once I find it open, he's done for. I do it. <laughs> I do it invariably. Even though the minute before I have been recalling a hundred reasons that should make me refrain. It is some devil that urges me to thwart my own schemes by killing him. You fight against that devil for love as long as you may. When the time comes... Not all the angels in heaven shall save him. So, every night, <laughs> Hinton, before he goes to bed, goes upstairs and rattles Heathcliff's door to see if it's unlocked. If it's unlocked, he's going to go in there and he's going to kill him. He's going to shoot him dead. He does this every night as part of his bedtime routine. And every night the door is locked. And he's saying to Isabella, hey, sweetheart, do yourself a favor. Remember to lock and bolt the door because, you know... What's going to happen is I'm going to probably come up there every night that you live here and I'm, I'm going to open it. And if you're in bed with him, I'll probably end up shooting you dead too. So, you know, just fair warning, you know, fair warning, kid. Um, I mean, that does not sound like a happy home. I don't, I don't, I don't mean to t tell tales out of school, but that does not sound like a very happy home. I surveyed the weapon inquisitively. A hideous notion struck me. How powerful I should be possessing such an instrument. I took it from his hand and touched the blade. He looked astonished at the expression my face assumed during a brief second. It was not horror. It was covetousness. He snatched the pistol back jealously, shut the knife, and returned it to its concealment. I don't care if you tell him, said he. Put him on his guard and watch for him. You know the terms we are on, I see. His danger does not shock you. What has Heathcliff done to you, I asked? In what has he wronged you to warrant this appalling hatred? Wouldn't it be wiser to bid him quit the house? No, thundered Earnshaw. Should he offer to leave me, he's a dead man. Persuade him to attempt it and you are a murderess. 
Am I to lose all without a chance of retrieval? Is Hareton to be a beggar? Oh, damnation, I will have it back, and I'll have his gold too, and then his blood, and hell shall have his soul. It'll be ten times blacker with that guest than ever it was before. Hell itself will be ten times blacker once Heathcliff is there. So I think Heathcliff has swindled him out of all his money, and he's taken possession of the house, and if he were to leave then he would take everything with him, and, and that would be it for old Earnshaw. You've acquainted me, Ellen, with your old master's habits. He is clearly on the verge of madness. He was so last night, at least. I shuddered to be near him, and thought of the servant's ill-bred moroseness as comparatively agreeable. He now recommenced his moody walk, and I raised the latch and escaped into the kitchen. Joseph was bending over the fire, peering into a large pan that swung above it, and a wooden bowl of oatmeal stood on the settle close by. The contents of the pan began to boil, and he turned to plunge his hand into the bowl. I conjectured that this preparation was probably for our supper, and being hungry, I resolved it should be eatable, so crying out sharply, "'I'll make the porridge,' I removed the vessel out of his reach and proceeded to take off my hat and riding habit. Mr. Earnshaw, I continued, directs me to wait on myself. I will. I'm not going to act the lady among you for fear I should starve. Good Lord, he muttered, sitting down and stroking his ribbed stockings from the knee to the ankle. If they to be fresh orderings, just when I getten used to two maesters, if I mon have a mistress at all my head, it's like time to be flitting. I never did think to say to thee, what I mud <laughs> God damn it, Joseph. Mud leave no old place, but I did, it's near at hand. I think he's saying, uh, now we got two, ma- I, I, well, let's just read it. Uh, what the hell is he saying? It's so frustrating. Good Lord, if there's to be fresh orderings, giving of orders, just when I've got used to two masters, if I must have a mistress set over my head, it's like time to be moving on. I never did think to see the day that I might leave the old place, but I fear it's nigh at hand. <sighs> well, so be it. Joseph, the world and Wuthering Heights would be better off without you, you know? Because you suck, dude. Uh, all right, well, let's just leave it there. You know, it's just, ugh, we're just working our way through this letter. We're getting the sense of what's going on there at Wuthering Heights. It's fallen into disrepair. The people are in disrepair. Even the dishes have taken on dust and tarnish. So, you know, it's just the way it is there. Four miles away from the old Thrushcross Grange. Now, I don't know why she says she can't leave. I don't know why she's saying, you know, it might as well be the Atlantic Ocean. Why not just march on your heel and get the hell out? You know, this isn't, this is not what you were promised, Isabella. You were promised a happy life with Heathcliff. And though you were warned by others that he would not care a jot for you, it is not your fault that you became ensorcelled by the devil himself and you shouldn't blame yourself for it now uh i wish you no ill will on isabella as i said she's just a kid you know 
just a junior in high school or some such thing and doesn't know the ways of the world and some, you know, uh, brooding man with flashing eyes comes sniffing around Thrushcross Grange, of course she's going to get a little schoolgirl crush on him. But, you know, should she have to pay for that with the rest of her life? Of course not. Just, you know, rip up the marriage certificate and walk on home to Thrushcross Grange. Nobody would think you any the worse for it. I know your brother would forgive you, and so would I. And I know maybe you don't care about my opinion, but you do care about your brother's. And uh, Thrushcross Grange, for all of its drama at the moment, with Catherine fomenting and foaming at the mouth and uh, delirious and all the rest of it, you know, it's, it's still a hell of a lot better than it is at the height. So just pack a lunch pail, take the walk back, you'll be fine. But I don't think she's going to do it. She says she can. I don't know why. If there's one thing we Americans have, it's gumption. And Isabella's nothing if not an American lass. So she certainly doesn't lack gumption. Well, I mean, she doesn't really. I mean, she rode off in the night with this stranger. So right on back. And then just say those, those, that, that magic phrase three times, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, I divorce thee. And then that will be that. But she's already said she can't. I don't know why. Is it the shame? Is that what it is? Just the shame? Well, better to have shame than just a, a life of misery. He's a, you know, he's kind of Voldemort almost, this Heathcliff. Everything he touches just turns dark and evil. Does he, is he really that unredemptive? Are we really not going to see any redemptive qualities in Heathcliff whatsoever? I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, by the time Lockwood meets him, he seems to have mellowed at least a little bit. I mean, he's still a dick, but he's not like this. He's not demonic. She may be right to ask, is he a man? Or if not, is he a devil? She may be right to ask that question. The, the, the smell of sulfur bleeds through the pages. But those are, uh, you know, those are, those are thoughts for next time. Me, I'm, I'm on my way to Dublin. I've got I've to name some tunes. And uh, I'll tell you how I did on the next musical episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedron. We rely on you, the listeners, for support, so please go to patreon.com slash Black, and you will get early access to ad-free episodes and more content from me. That's patreon.com slash Black. See you next time.